Hey everyone, welcome to the Birth Talks, an intersectional feminist podcast about birth conversations that matter. I'm your host, Mai Ngo. So I've got a question for you. Can I ask you a question? Okay. Okay. Do you know what your uterus is? Um, it's a part of our body that can make a baby. Yeah, that's right. If your uterus could talk, what would it say? Uh, (laughs) the only time that you think about me is when you're annoyed with me I think that's what it would say (laughs) Uh, oh my gosh that is a hard one if my uterus could say anything what would it say it would say I'm here for a good time not for a long time Excuse me well. You know, the, like feminism in that sort of colonial term, that, 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 that runs through our veins. That's a part of our DNA. That's a part of how we got to be here, you know, because of my ancestors, because of the, the strong Ogichita Anishinaabe Kwe's. Like, I'm here because they were all feminists before feminism became a thing. I think has happened is that there has developed very sort of combative and, and binary approach to childbirth as being one that is medically determined or rejects medicine. Pregnancy, birth, parenting, it means so many different things to so many different people. What does living a healthy reproductive life mean in the context of reproductive justice? Our birth conversations are the kind that often get left out of the mainstream. I promise, like life, we'll leave you with some answers, but perhaps more questions. These are birth conversations that matter. These are the birth talks. Are you ready? Basically recording this last episode of series one, and I'm going to be co-hosting it today with Vanessa, who's the writing fellow for sexual politics from Bitch Media. And series one really focused on reproductive justice and looked at through looked at this through an intersectional lens in the context of uh, contemporary Canada. So what does pregnancy, birth, and parenting mean for Canadians from all different walks of life? So for the last episode, uh, I really want to look back at um, reproductive justice and then how we can move forward in this work, um, either as birth workers or birth advocates or people experiencing pregnancy or parenting in different kinds of ways. Um, My name is Vanessa. I live in Chicago. I work here as well. Um, I'm a teaching artist and educator, the Bitch Media Writing Fellow. Um, My focus is reproductive justice. I was born and raised in a town called West Chicago, which is a western suburb. Uh, But then I moved to a place called DeKalb, which is sort of like a rural country sort of town which was a complete change for me um I live in Chicago I've been living here for maybe seven years yeah seven ish years my father is from Zacatecas Mexico and my mom is actually the daughter of immigrants she grew up she was born in she tells me I don't know how true the story is, but she says she was born in the backseat of a taxi cab in the southwest side of Chicago. <laughs> um, I guess you know her pregnancy, her labor was just 
too quick for her to make it to the um, the hospital. But, you know, my parents have lived very different, different lives growing up, different sort of um, struggles. You know, my father's an immigrant. My mom was grew up working class, poor in the southwest side of Chicago, which is a struggle in itself. And Like, I, I identify as a queer woman of color. I have been a single mom, um, which I chose to to raise like a child on my own for the first bit and then also working a lot in the LGBTQ communities and uh, racialized communities and always kind of having worked with not-for-profits so like for me it's really it's like it's easy to think about reproductions but even, but I even have trouble explaining why um, why it's an approach that's important for birth workers in Canada um, so I don't know, like, do you, like, do you have any easy ways of kind of looking at it or? Yeah. So, um, when I think about reproductive justice, an easier way for me to think about it and also explain it to other people is to think of it as reproductive injustices. So thinking about the ways that, you know, certain types and levels of oppression impact um, reproduction. So thinking of environmental racism, thinking about um, housing, thinking about um, class and race and all of those things sort of, and, and thinking of how these intersections um, impact reproductions, someone's right to reproduction, someone's right to abortion, the proximity and access that a person might have to that. And, you know, you, the reason why I think it, it can be hard to explain um, is because if you don't experience, um, if you don't experience or know people who experience marginalization in their life, it's almost like it, it's yeah. like, it's like it doesn't exist. You almost have to prove it. Like in the way that Charlottesville, what I actually, this is the weirdest thing to say, but I actually appreciated it because it made all the work that people have been doing in anti-oppression suddenly seem real. Yeah, it's 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 one of those things that seems to be like really amorphous and includes so much and it's reproductive justice. I mean, it can be anything from menstruation to birth to abortion to post-birth care to, you know, pre-birth care. It could be anything from I mean, it even it even includes like the prison industrial complex and how it sort of targets, you know, young women of color, particularly black women, and, you know, how this is affecting reproduction and someone's right to reproduce, but also someone's right to not. Um, yeah, it just goes across so many, so many things. It's, it's, it's also like, um, like, it was interesting, because I, well, like, when I went through the, um, went through care the first time. That's the first time that I realized uh, the differences that different people received in healthcare. Like it was really interesting navigating as a solo um, mom and and kind of getting, um, I guess it was almost, uh, you, you could, like I, I could experience that kind of discrimination that would happen versus if I was to come in with my, my male partner, for example. So I had a very different experience this time because now I do have a, um, a male partner. So it was just really, that's what like, I couldn't like, I'm just, I think what I'm trying to kind of convey, I think reproductive justice, I think, because this, this first series, I think pulled people in, 
in the first episode because there was a really palatable way of pulling people in. But then I kind of, in episode four, got a little bit more, um, con like it got more complex and a little bit more academic and reproductive justice lies as a theoretical framework, which, you know, when you, when you say that, it like turns people off, right? Um, oh, totally. I think, I mean, and I think that's why, you know, when women or, you know, queer folks or whoever, when they hear about all of these states, at least in the United States, um, creating legislation that makes abortion access almost impossible or even birth, proper birth care impossible or more difficult, it's like, to us, it's a no-brainer. Like, I mean, of course these are resources that we need. You know, of course we need Planned Parenthood, but the people that are, that are putting this legislation on the board and into power, they... You know, they're dudes that men that don't know what it's like to sort of face an unwanted pregnancy or to not afford proper proper care. Um, yeah, I mean, that sort of reminds me of this new trend. Not, I don't want to call it a trend, but you know, birth doulas are becoming more popular, and more are seeking birth doulas, and. Um, you know, that also brings up the question, are these doulas certified? Do they work with a hospital? Do they work with a doctor? Or are they just women or people from a community that know about birth? They know what it's like. They know they know what to expect during a pregnancy. Um, you know, you can go the certified route or not. And, um, you know, is this a doula that is being paid? Do they... Do they have costs for their services. Um, yeah, like also who has the financial access to get a doula and, you know, at, at least a doula that works with a hospital or a clinic. Because for my, myself, actually, I after my birth, I was like, I want to be a doula. And now five years later, I finally got certified by X organization. And I was like, this is shit. Like, why did I get certified? This is so stupid. Why did I do this? Um, realizing, you know, like it got, like this whole system got capitalized and like, I'm like, of course, like I, w I was able to afford, right, paying hundreds of dollars for the certification that really it's all a load of crap and who gets to kind of control, um, who gets certified and what, what is legitimate in terms of information. So that's, that's been, that's been very interesting. Um, and I would, yeah, definitely agree with you that kind of falls into falls into reproductive justice conversations as well me myself have been trying to like go the route of becoming a doula but even you know me thinking about it do I want to be certified do I not who would be teaching how much is it even going to cost to become certified who can afford to become certified and you know when I was thinking about this I was still in college um and I certainly didn't have the funds, you know, to, to pay that off. I mean, one workshop can be as much as $600. Um, and it's pretty pricey. But then I, th I started to think, you know, I, I come from a big family and it's a matriarch family and most of my cousins and my aunts are all women. Um, and my one aunt, she's been there for every single birth, you know, from my cousins to her sister's. And even to her own daughter, my cousin recently had um, her first child, and I realized that she's a doula, you know. Um, 
she's there during the birth. She's there at the hospital. She's there afterwards. And she's raised so many babies. Um, you know, even though she's only had two herself, her own children. And I realized that this is something that is knowledge that's passed down from the women in your family, from people you grow up with. And I realized that I, I don't know if it's necessary to become certified. And, you know, like you said, it is this, this capitalization um, of a very ancient sort of practice of, of a woman taking care of another woman during her birth. And not only women now, but, you know, all kinds of identities. So do you, like, this is, so this is where I was kind of left as I was kind of, like, I was trying to, we were, you know, finishing capping off the series is like ways forward. Cause I, I always know typical conversations being in this work, people get frustrated and they're like, well, you talk to us a lot about the inequities. Um, but what can we do to kind of, what can we do? And we just wrapped up pride season here in Canada. So, um, and I interviewed, uh, Emily Miller, who did this post back in uh, June, I think that's what you said there. Um, And so this post, it was really interesting. It got shared close to 27,000 shares and then liked by about more than 33,000 people. I'm curious as to maybe, maybe you can kind of take a guess about why it was so popular because... It's that that to me was what, what interested me about how, how popular this post is. Because Emily was saying that, yeah, my posts usually like get shared five or six times, you know, liked five or six times, not even shared. So what was it about this particular post um, that was so, that kind of really got to people? Well, I think that, I think the popularity of that post and just like this, this resurgence of learning about queer history comes from a place of urgency, I think, you know. More and more transgender people are being killed. Um, you know, we we are talking more about police brutality and the impact that it has on the black community, the queer community, the trans community. And I think, you know, the more that people are talking about it, the more it's becoming not only a talking piece, but something that we that people in general feel the, the need to to share and talk about. And I think it is related to allyship. And I think Facebook is sort of, because it's so public and it's so, I mean, one post can get 27,000 plus likes, you know. Um, if you share it on your Facebook page, who knows who's on your friends list? Someone's going to read it and they're going to be like, oh, I didn't know that. Or, oh, this is actually very important, you know. Um, yeah, I think I think well what you touched upon just now is the urgent I guess there's that urgency these days. Yeah. It's it's kind of like the you can't ignore anymore that racism and sexism and all these you know is Islamophobia and homophobia they like they exist. Yeah, and I think that you know when people share these posts, they reblog, they share, they like um it, in some ways, it can be considered an act of resistance or solidarity even, maybe more so solidarity, um, you know, because so much of life is social now and it's online and um, people feel the need or they feel more comfortable sharing their political beliefs. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's like, I think 
going back to to why this relates to reproductive justice, it, it kind of, mm-hmm. it's like a space suddenly where people feel like, okay, well, what can I do? What does it mean to be an ally? And does the term ally, you know, how does it sit with people and how does it sit with us maybe in particular? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, so the way that I see the word ally, or, I mean, it's a word that's thrown around a lot. And it's sort of frustrating to me because it's easy to to say to someone or to announce that you're not racist or that you're not homophobic or, you know, whatever the case. But um, I think there's a lot of work that has to be done to be an ally, to be an ally that's actually in community with, actually in support of a lot of people whose lives are on the line daily. Um, I... There was this one article that was being shared recently online. I saw a lot of my friends sharing it. Um, a lot of my, I mean, a lot of my white friends in particular, I, which I thought was really interesting because I was sort of paying attention to that, like who's sharing this article. And it was an article written by this white woman about how difficult it is to explain the humanity of, um, I can't remember exactly, but like, you know, people who are being killed by police. I mean, that's coded language for black people, right? And she was saying in this piece that it's difficult for her and it's tiring and exhausting for her to um, justify the humanity of all of these people to her racist um, family and all of this. And she sort of decided by the end of it that she wasn't going to even try to talk to them anymore. Um, and I sort of, the sense that I got from that is that you should, right? You, as a white woman who encompasses so many privileges, you are the, the, you are the exact person who should be having these very difficult conversations, who should be going to bed exhausted by having to explain the humanity of so many people, because you, you have the resources to take care of yourself after doing that, you know what I mean? Um, as opposed to like, a, a black woman who has to explain every day to her boss or has to deal with microaggressions or has to deal with people telling her things on the street or whatever the case, or an undocumented woman sort of carrying around this fear of someone finding her out or, you know, being whatever the case is. Um, it's not up to those people to explain their humanity to the rest of the world. Um, in allyship, you have to be doing some extremely difficult work Um but yeah, so it was frustrating for me to see so many of my white friends who I know, you know, have good intentions and all that. They're not bad people, but I was just like, you know, I, I get that you're tired, but so, I mean, imagine the rest of the world, you know what I mean? Um, we, we don't have time to be tired. We go to bed tired, we wake up and we spend the it's day. It's just part time. of our life. Yeah, exactly. There's no breaks, um, which seems to be something that a lot of white people don't understand because they are allowed a ton of breaks. I think you, I think you've hit a point, but there's something, um, there's something about wanting to to do it and then be done with it and then shut it off. But realizing actually, the world, a lot of the world doesn't work like that, especially for people experiencing uh, oppression. So yeah. it's it's a journey that we're all. This kind of sounds super corny, but it's, 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 it is kind of a journey we're all doing together because we can't do it without people who do have that privilege. Right. 
Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with sharing a post that's very political on someone's Facebook, right? That is definitely impacting socially on some level, but it's not, it's, it's just not enough, you know? And I don't think it's asking for too much from, you know, communities of color, queer communities, marginalized communities to be asking for more from allies. But, like that, that term, I guess, the ally term becomes uncomfortable because it's kind of been an easy way out in a way. Like it's like I'm an ally and I listen, but there's a lot more to being an ally than just than just listening. Yeah, totally. I think it requires a lot of showing up. This is I mean, I experienced this on a personal level actually with cuz I have a a white male partner and that was always, you know, in the beginning um I resisted actually are getting together because of him being a white male and because I knew that I would have to struggle a lot more with um, explaining um, explaining myself sometimes and explaining, you know, certain values that I have. And, and actually what you said reminds me of the things that him and I have been going through um, and, and actually the journey that it, we've both taken together in the past two years of just the growth that it's kind of actually, um, in, it's brought out, it still is work. And, and he's had to do a lot of work about what does it mean to be uncomfortable. Yeah. But being an ally means a lot more than just um, trying and doing your best. It actually means, it, it really means um, kind of going over the edge sometimes, which is what a lot of people who experience oppression tend to do in their daily lives. Yeah, I think that's very true. I think sometimes people might slap the the term ally onto themselves to avoid being uncomfortable, you know, to avoid have those conversations about race or about misogyny or, you know, the immigrant experience to the American, you know, experience and, that's also what's frustrating to me is that you should always be engaging with either communities of that are marginalized or your own communities of privilege to to educate each other and to further your own understanding and to really think about ways to support um, communities communities that need it. I want to share a conversation that I had with Emily Miller back in June about being an ally. I was at Pride with my family and I noticed that her Facebook post had gotten um, astronomical shares and likes. She highlights Marsha P. Johnson, who's an African-American drag queen, um, who's one of the gender non-conforming people who led the 1969 Stonewall Uprising. She writes, when you're out celebrating Pride this weekend, when you read the news um, about violence against black people, remember Marsha. The reason any of us can go to a three-day Pride festival as casually as we please with whomever we love and celebrate our lives is because Marsha P. Johnson, an African-American street queen, picked up a goddamn shot glass, shattered a mirror in that bar, and resisted arrest. Never forget that your Pride was once against the law. And when the discussions about the reduced police presence at Pride come, I want you to remember Marsha's face and ask yourself, who has the power and who's still struggling for the enforcement of their civil rights? Uh, my name is Emily Miller, and I am a uh, queer uh, woman living in St. Paul, Minnesota. So so the reason why I contacted you 
Um, I actually just had a, a friend share your post, liked 31,000 times and shared about 25,800 times, um, which is pretty staggering for what, like for a Facebook post. No, I was, I was pretty surprised that it was as popular as it was. I'm used to just sort of, you know, writing things for my friends and family and just sort of sending them out into the void. Um, and the fact that this one sort of took off was kind of surprising to me. We've been hearing so much, um, especially this year and especially in St. Paul and Minneapolis about um, police brutality and violence and shootings um, specifically directed toward um, the black community. And I know within the gay community, there's been a sort of tendency to sort of, well, not so much get involved with any of that. And um, there's even been some rancor uh, among uh, the more privileged set of the gay community uh, that Black Lives Matter, for example, would interfere with the pride parades or would be asking that the police as an institution not march openly. You know, I'm an ally. <laughs> I'm white. I'm cisgendered. I cannot possibly speak to this experience as well as somebody um, who is trans or black. But from where I'm sitting, we as a community owe a huge debt of gratitude to people of color and uh, people who aren't gender conforming um, for basically getting this movement off the ground. And obviously the history of gay rights extends way, way back before Stonewall. But that being said, I mean, the riots really are what we commemorate at Pride. And so to be resentful of <laughs> to be resentful of those people for wanting to be represented at Pride seems incredibly hypocritical to me. I mean, especially as a feminist, um, you know, I'm, I very much believe in intersection, intersectionality. Um, I believe that women's rights, you know, encompass, you know, trans women's rights and non-gender conforming women's rights. And I believe that gay rights are and queer rights and everybody's rights need to be sort of inclusive and involve everyone. And if, if your version of advocacy and being an ally involves the exclusion of people, then that does more harm than good. So as, as like a white cisgendered queer woman, how did you reach the journey where you're at with intersectionality? Like how did you reach the understanding of yourself as an ally today? you know, you learn about the theory behind it. You, you know, you study it, um, you know, sex and gender classes in college obviously play a role. Um, and then, you know, I have many good, uh, transgendered friends, to be honest, who have taught me so much about intersection intersectionality and the importance of that. And, you know, I have friends of color who have, you know, taught me the importance of, you know, being a good you know, ally and knowing when to shut up <laughs> because, you know, there are times when, you know, your job is to say nothing and to amplify the voices that are already speaking. I really appreciated that talk with Emily and I can actually feel my body relaxing and giving a sigh of relief because I knew she was one of those people who understood and took the time to understand oppression. Um, she also wasn't afraid to engage her privileged friends in difficult conversations 
she made me think more about what being an ally actually means. Like, can we, can we try to brainstorm, like, what we could share with people? Like, like it does it go beyond kind of what Emily said? Yeah. Or, like, would you agree yeah. or not agree? Um, I definitely do agree um, that sometimes your best role as an ally is to let other people speak, especially if it's in a public setting, especially if it's, it's in a setting where... Um, there are going to be different voices prioritized and the voice that is speaking is the one that typically isn't. Um, so I think that's very true, but I think that's a really good question to think about ways to be an ally in terms of reproductive justice. And I think look like a lot of different ways. Um, I, I think that's probably the complicated answer that people don't want to hear but it's actually just what it is is that there it's it is multiple ways like you can't mm-hmm. there actually really isn't um one way right it's 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 a whole process yeah it's i yeah. think like you said it's constant it's showing up um and then there's the listening and then there's um knowing when to be quiet but then also knowing when to um use one's privilege uh, mm-hmm. to speak up as well. So I, I think that's the part that frustrates people is that it's not a black and white answer. Yeah. I mean, there are so many different ways, like being an abortion doula or, you know, helping someone that, you know, cover the cost of their abortion or, um, buying diapers for a single mom or, you know, a couple that is kind of in need of it or, you know, all these different ways that communities sort of come together. And I think I think that might be, to me, when I think about all these oppressions and all of these struggles that so many of my friends, my communities, even me go through, I think a, a lot of times the answer is community. Um, you know, being able to count on other people, but then also making yourself available for other people to count on. Um I think the also the that that idea of just learning to be uncomfortable as well, yes. eh? Like it's just we're gonna make mistakes. We're gonna say really things. We're gonna do and say things that are inappropriate unintentionally, but not focus on the word that it's in. Not focus on the intention. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I think sometimes we get so hung up on that. It's like. Um, we get hung up on well they were they had good intentions and yeah. and that's fine but let's move beyond that and then and then really delve deeper into that discomfort that we may have said something inappropriate or done something that wasn't what the person that we wanted to be working with wanted exactly exactly i think that's so true and i think that's you know one of the the pieces that a lot of people don't think about or they're afraid of, you know, because no one wants to be uncomfortable and no one wants to make a mistake or say something offensive or, but that's really when that happens and then someone goes to you about that, that's when you really learn. And that's when you're like, Oh, you're right. I see that now. Um, and I think really there should be more space to be like, you know, sometimes you're not going to say the right thing. You know, even if you are a part of a marginalized community, like me as a Latina, like as, me as a, an ally to the black community, to black women, I, I run the risk of saying things. And I'm sure that I have said things. And I've even asked friends, like, hey, I have this question about this. 
And I go to them because I want, I want to know, right? Most of the really successful dudes that make a lot of money right now, um, are white. And is there any responsibility for them to take on, to be mentors? Yeah. Yeah, It's, it's like, there's, I think you've got to make a living. Um, you can turn your passion into a business, Mm -hmm. but if you want to be an ally and, and do reproductive justice work and call it reproductive justice work, then it's it's a constant reexamination of how we engage in these practices, um, yeah. yeah, which means reevaluating, reevaluating who who kind of gets the business, who gets to be called a called a birth worker, um, et cetera, et cetera. So so there's it got it definitely there's there's so much there's so many layers that you can kind of get into. Um. But you use an interesting word, which is, like, this business of it. And I think even that speaks to, like, this commercialization of of this new movement. And I think also what an ally can do is to sort of legitimize a lot of doulas that are not certified, right? That learned learned what they know about birth, about labor about post-birth care from the women in their family, um, ancestrally or indigenous native practices, um, growing up, you know, poor and then learning how to um, make use of your resources and what you don't have. And I think legitimizing that, that sort of doula care is absolutely important as well. Uh, so actually you you just produced your third piece with bitch media yeah so i'm sure you heard about the charlottesville sort of like um i don't know if it was a response to that or if there's just this like trend i think it is generally a trend that i didn't know about but more and more people are calling for the remove the removal of like confederate statues but as also statues of people in history that you know turned out to be pretty awful and um the gynecologist j marion sims was one of them so this activist group byp 100 black youth project 100 um they have different chapters in different parts of the the u.s but the new york chapter they organized this this protest where a few, I think it was six black women, went to the side of the monument and wearing, like, hospital gowns that sort of had, like, this red paint that seemed like blood above their wombs um, as a sort of protest to, you know, this extremely racist and violent and deadly history of modern gynecology and so I saw this post on Facebook um because it was pretty popular a lot of people were sharing it um and I, I just made the connection you know between between the this monument and then everything that went down in Charlottesville mm, yeah it's it actually um it's pretty shocking what what we I mean what cities have put up in terms of commemorating like what how did the government get away with this kind of 
like this kind of these kind of atrocities and this kind of oppressions like it's just crazy they proposed the park the parks district proposed that they were they weren't going to remove the monument but instead they would put up these plaques with the names of three women that uh, J. Marion Sims experimented on Anarka, Lucy and Betsy and to me that's that's just ridiculous you know what I mean like they were going to put the the names of the women that he experimented on that the slaves that he bought beneath him in this monument you know to honor them it's bizarre Alberta actually had an act called the sexual sterilization act where they actually sterilized 2800 people uh yeah so it's it's crazy because like I think people often, it's kind of like Emily said, you know, people think racism just happens in the States. And to be honest, a lot of, there's a lot of comments online, social media online uh, from politicians who support that kind of, uh, you know, totally outrageous idea that racism doesn't exist here. Um, But like when you, when you look at like forced sterilization, which happened in the States, like, and then you look at that, it's happened in Canada um, it's just hard to, it's hard to ignore again why, why reproductive justice isn't some, and why it's, it's something we can't, like, it's, it's out there. It exists. Like, yeah, you know, you're, you're not just, it's not just an act of supporting someone through their birth. Um, it, it's, it, we still have to ask, like, there's still so many questions that have to be asked. Like, who gets to access that service who gets to be who who's able to afford it who doesn't mm-hmm. get that information um mm-hmm. if you can read about the history of our how our nation state was built like how can how it, we just can't ignore that so many injustices have happened and especially um if you're of of the non-privileged groups um, we know that it exists. And so this is why, you know, in quote, being an ally or whatever you want to call it, being an advocate in reproductive justice becomes so important. Um, yeah. Charlottesville highlighted what we needed to, to, to highlight. It, it need, we needed to wake up. Cool. Anyways, that's my rant. I'm done. <laughs> No, I, I totally agree with you on that. I mean, th- these are things that I'm thinking about all the time, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so much, so much complexity. To me, the challenge is always how to rope people in who don't really tend to like to listen to this kind of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I've had a, I've had a lot of great people who kind of run in obviously similar social circles that are like, yeah, this is great. But like to me, it's like how do you reach? Um, average joe josephine whoever um who doesn't think it's that this affects them at all you know and and make them think think a little bit differently about about uh about reproductive justice and and just the experience of being a parent or just the experience of being pregnant or the experience of um, requiring an abortion or uh, you know like it's there's it hits us all at, at one point where we have to confront what these experiences mean to us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you think about the freedom 
of one group of people and, and what that would mean for the rest of us, right? Um, if we saw justice for the black community, how would that, you know, one person's liberation in a lot of ways is the liberation for a lot of the rest of us. Um, and that is something that we should be striving for, right? Um, in some ways, some of us are free. In other ways, some of us are not. Pregnancy, birth, parenting, it means so many different things to so many different people. What does living a healthy reproductive life mean in the context of reproductive justice? Our birth conversations are the kind that often get left out of the mainstream. I promise, like life, we'll leave you with some answers, but perhaps more questions. These are birth conversations that matter. These are the birth talks.